0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Scenario spoilers. Ambiguity in RPG settings. Cromwell's spies. And Camille Flammarion. Cogs and Commissars is a new
1: card game from Atlas Games. It's a clever card game of glorious robot
0: revolution, where players control the means of production. If you like feeling smart, take that gameplay, awesome card combos, or Soviet robots. Cogs and Commissars is a game you need to check out Immediately. For the motherboard! To promote the game's release and support friendly local game stores, Atlas Games has a special
1: promotion! If you buy Cogs and Commissars at Brick and Mortar Game Store and send selfie to Atlas, they mail you special Neon Botski promo card.
0: Botsky joins existing faction leaders like Simulenin, Gorobotchev, and the artificial style intelligence. And not a moment too soon. Buy cogs and commissars at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash Botsky. That's Botsky with a Y. Or
1: follow link in show notes.
0: Remember, the revolution will be mechanized. The rattle of dice, the thunk of miniatures, the uh, crunching of Doritos inform us that we're once more in the shag carpeted confines of the gaming hut. Yet, hey, but what do I see on the expression of Peter Frampton's face on the gatefold cover of Frampton Comes Alive that we've pressed into service as a GM screen? Is he looking somewhat guilty, Ken? He does. He, he does. has a abashed expression that suggests that he has read the adventure already, because Patreon backer V Weather says, and asks, like many people in the hobby, I enjoy reading adventure modules and source books, but I don't usually GM. What should I do when I suddenly recognize the module my GM is running or get an invite to play in something classic that I've already read? Uh So, Ken, this is a, a, a specialized dilemma, but uh, perhaps one that um, uh, many of our uh, listeners have found themselves in. One that is perhaps more common than, uh, than not.
1: Yes. All right. I guess there's a couple of things that y- you sort of need to uh, take in, take on board before you can answer this for yourself. And everyone's answer is going to be different because everyone's ability to enjoy things and firewall things is different. Um, I think, first of all, if you are congenitally incapable of enjoying a thing you've already read without acting on player information, on previous information, then don't play it because then you're just boring yourself. And so you say to the GM or whoever, oh, I'm sorry, I've already read this adventure. And if you're in the middle of a campaign, your character will be clonked on the head or sent into a soul jar or something to keep you out. And suddenly your Tuesday nights are free for a week or two, which is sad, but not uh, heartbreaking.
0: Right. And it can be somewhat awkward because uh, as the question suggests, you can, uh, it's not typical for the GM to hold up, right, you know, and the, say, today we're running into the tonight. Maze
1: of Tamo and Chan, everybody. And, you know, I hope no one's ready. Right.
0: Although sometimes the GM will indeed check to say, have you run Maze of Tamo and Chan? And then that's. Right. Uh, so it's also kind of on the GM if you're, if you're running a classic. Mm -hmm. I think, I think probably
1: no one in the last maybe 15 years has sprung Masks of Nierlothotep on their players where they're like just dooting around in New York and suddenly Jackson Elias drops dead at their feet and they're like, holy crap. I think everyone says, uh, we're going to play Masks of Nierlothotep. So you're going to need to clear out, oh, I don't know, two years. Is that cool? (laughs)
0: Yeah. And, uh, and with something like Tomb of Horrors, it's even like the, uh, assumption is that uh, you are perhaps revisiting this experience and that, you know, it's a, a remake of uh, something you uh, played a while ago. Although, of course, tons of new people are coming into right. D&D for whom Tomb of Horrors is, is as fresh as the latest Harry Potter prequel. But... Right.
1: <laughs> and Well, actually considerably fresher, but that's a different discussion. That's, um, that's
0: an entirely different discussion. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's just the practicality of, you know, you can discover at an inconvenient moment that Uh uh-oh, someone just dropped dead. This can't be... Oh, no. And bowing out can be awkward, and and it can be... That's something that maybe your GM and, and other players don't want you to do. Yeah, especially if you're
1: hosting the game, for example.
0: If you're hosting the game, <laughs> if you're driving people to the game, if mm-hmm. you're supplying the uh, aforementioned Doritos, or just if you're needed to make up quorum. Right. So, Or are just so delightful as, they can't
1: stand to play for two Tuesdays without you.
0: Well, yes. This is this is implicit, of course. Right. So as, as, you're as a Ken a Robin listener, backer For
1: God's sake. Or listener. Yes.
0: You, you're the most charming person in the room by, right. by far. Um, and so, uh the rest of our discussion will be about what do you do if the decision is to stick around? And mm-hmm. so, first of all, I would think that uh, honor requires you to inform the GM that you must uh, now switch your role from that of a uh, uh, surprised onlooker to ringer. That right. you this is where you become and a uh, co-collaborator with the GM that uh, leverages your knowledge of what is already going to happen and so your job is now to uh, not to exploit the information that you have for advantage uh but uh, rather to uh help make the fun things that happen in the adventure uh, occur and so that in fact may mean uh, the opposite of you know using your uh, player knowledge for your advantage, but it may be that you're the one who makes sure that the mistake gets made that mm-hmm. leads everybody to go, you know, you argue for the stuff that leads to uh, what you think is fun and cool and sort of hang back when it comes to uh, theorizing as, as to what's going on, or you just create the theories that your character would otherwise have. So this and And this may be a matter of sort of switching out what kind of player you are, right? If you're normally the tactician who tries to come up with the Ingenious plan that allows everybody to get in and out with the minimum of risk. And it's much tougher to make this gear switch than it is if you're already kind of a storyteller or uh, a method actor uh, player, because in those cases you can, you know, just think of it as, oh, I'm just going to help drive the narrative. Whereas if you're a tactician, don't read modules yeah, is my answer. Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Although of course, you know, that's like saying if you like chess, don't read game- books of chess games. I mean, sort of go, Argument against interest there. I think another possible thing that you can do if you can't uh, physically be gone, maybe your character can be gone and you play, as Robin says, either the ringer, you're the guy from the village that got recruited to come in, or you're the uh, psychic who has sort of weird visions of what's going on or something else. Whatever your character is, um, rather than being the kind of character who does tactically clever things, you're no longer the ranger or the, uh, or the uh, wizard, but you play a fighter or you play a cleric. You play someone who's necessary for the party to move, but no one, uh, who is expected to make a uh, commander tactical decisions so you are free to enjoy the the ride without spoiling it for other people this is if you either if the GM says no no I've got it just don't ruin it for people if he doesn't want a ringer or if she doesn't want a ringer then you can go ahead and play uh in either a different mode or as a different character because lots of uh, places it makes total sense to swap your character out briefly and play a different character and then the other sort of side possibility in that uh, fold of answers is that your character becomes not so much the ringer for the GM, but that you use your foreknowledge to deepen the experience in the sense rather you don't work your way around it, but you provide uh foreshadowing you're you know you're you were there in a dream your uncle was there and left a diary uh and maybe your uncle's diary is wrong in certain important ways and the GM having been forewarned now moves the pit trap from level 2 to level 4 and fills it not with spiders but with ankhags eggs or whatever and then that gives you a little bit of a of a of a fun riff as you go through a remake of uh, Maze of Shan or whatever else
0: right because it it also is quite different depending on It matters what module it is. If it's basically an explore a complex and uh, fight the enemies you find inside it sort of set up, the number of plot points that you can blow is pretty low. Mm -hmm. And so... As long as you're not going, oh, well, we really want to hit this encounter first because it's the one where we'll get the healing potion. Or when then you go into the not... puzzle
1: room, you don't say, um, green, red, red, green. I don't know. I just guessed.
0: Yeah. That's, that's obviously, uh, jerk play underhanded and what our, uh, what V weather is trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, you know, a D and D combat can go any way. And so mm-hmm. you, you know, you might know that there's, uh, laser unicorns on the other side of the door, but that doesn't, Help you fight them hugely. Uh, and so you can, uh, you know, have a mostly super fun time without necessarily blowing anything in a scenario that doesn't depend on mystery. But if there's something where, you know, it's a murder mystery and you've read it and you know that it's, uh, Dr. Blank who is, uh, uh, you know, the guy who seems to have a, a, a fever and is up in his bed, but is really running around killing people. Well, that makes it much tougher for the GM to uh, the GM either has to suddenly on the fly change the answer to the mystery or, uh, then you really have to have your character sort of pursuing a sub, a, a B plot. Uh, and so you can then say to the uh, GM, well, what if I, I obviously I can't take part in the whole investigation because I already know that it's, it's, um uh, Dr. Blank, but what if I, have this other thing that I'm doing at the in in the mansion is there some other character or some other sub goal that you can give me and you know when we have to go and fight the giant lizard that Dr. Blank is being controlled by I can you know pitch in there but, you know, what do we do about this? How do we right. how do you give me something fun to do that is not going to wreck everybody else's fun by knowing the answers?
1: I mean, with with Dr. Blank, that specific situation, what pops to my mind as the GM and this is I don't know if this is useful, but let's pretend it's a worked example of the answer. Um, the GM says, oh, your character falls madly in love with Sidney Blank, uh, Dr. Blank's uh, vapid but beautiful son. And, uh, so you are pursuing Sydney around the mansion and pitching woo to him. And, um, uh, that's why you don't believe it's Dr. Blank because, uh, Sydney's, f- uh, frail father could never be part of something so monstrous as th- all these beheadings. And, um, uh, and so you role play that and that adds the B plot element that you get in a dramatic mystery that you don't often get in a, um, uh, in a played out mystery because the player characters are Randy and automatons who bounce around through the setting and never touch anything. But uh, in this case, you've given yourself permission because you've already uh, spoiled the mystery for yourself to have different fun and make it a romance story with a mystery going on in the background. As far as your character is concerned.
0: Right. And so you're the GM then is essentially saying your goal is to keep Sydney alive and uh, wind up in Sydney's arms at the end of the, of the scenario. Now you don't necessarily want to play that to the point where you're also disrupting everybody, right? You don't right. want to take your B point plot and use it to ruin the A plot. No, you don't so you like, have
1: to destroy evidence or whatever.
0: Right. So basically the, uh, implicit or perhaps explicit agreement if you're typing away on your private Slack channel during the game is as soon as they figure out who it is, you, uh, you know, you're reluctant to believe that it could possibly be Sydney's father, but as soon as the evidence points that way, you know, you're not, suddenly uh some sort of goon you're not going to right. uh impede the investigation you're going to say, well uh surely okay well i must concede well surely he is it is some ghastly influence that have done and then of course it does right. turn out to be ghastly the giant lizard sea lizard in basement yes
1: you, you slap your forehead and say oh my my love for uh, beautiful sydney blinded me to the facts that you've presented um uh, dr merriweather thank you so much for having my back
0: right now i must protect sydney from this horror by uh uh, rescuing Dr. Blank from what is obviously a sinister infl- And so, you know, you continue to work the, the B plot so that it, uh, as it would in a, a TV episode or a, a novel or whatever that continues to dovetail into the A plot instead of wrecking the A plot. And but,
1: reinforce its themes, whatever those are.
0: Yeah. So I think, uh, uh basically you can all uh, consider yourselves to have, uh, read the scenario that was this segment and, uh, you can start reading the scenario that is the other segment. On the other side of this commercial, whatever it may be.
1: In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet built aircraft that touched the edge of space and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia.
0: Yeah, but there's more to that story.
1: In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs.
0: Oh, boy, is there more to that
1: story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos.
0: A government program named majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural a government program named delta green tries to destroy the unnatural in the fall of delta green you play the agents of delta green
1: caught between your oath to america and your duty to humanity caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions
0: written by kenneth height the fall of delta green adapts arc dream publishing's delta green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine The Fall
1: of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing
0: alone against
1: inevitable destruction.
0: Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter.
1: The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website.
0: It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world?
1: The chutter of IBM Selectric keys and the gurgle of mid-priced bourbon into jelly jar glasses welcome us once more to the paper crammed office in which we learn how to write good. And today we're talking not about the airy magical world of literature, but of <laughs> role playing game setting writing, something near and dear to both of our hearts, uh, here in the hut. Um, and the question, if I may put it so plainly, Robin, is ambiguity. Uh How do you make an RPG setting open to tinkering and play while still giving it enough uh boundaries and elements to make it worth tinkering and play? And that is the magic of ambiguity. Robin, what are your thoughts on this tenuous question?
0: Right. So the, the focus here is not on how to never have ambiguity, because, of course, ambiguity is an essential element of what uh, makes all narrative art interesting that, you know, uh, one of the things that is interesting, for example, about Hamlet is, you know, the, the levels of, of its ambiguity and, and its meaning and what it's trying to, to tell us. And the fact that it isn't just a straightforward thing where uh, the script tells you what to think about everything that's going on is why that is still open to reinterpretation hundreds of years later. But, I think there are different forms of ambiguity, and some of them are more useful to the uh, GM and to the players than others. Um, the first question you want to look at, though, is what mode of uh, voice is being used to convey information about the setting to the GM? What what voice are you writing in? And the the two obvious options are, this is an in-world document, or... Uh, you are the omniscient narrator speaking directly to the GM and occasionally breaking from your description of the setting to, uh, then, uh, describe, uh, here's how you use this in play, right? That's, it's direct address to the GM and the, uh, there's no conceit. It's just you're the, Writer of the setting, communicating information to the GM for the GM to use. So ambiguity in the first case, where you know this is the the journals of the vampire Radu, uh, telling you all about the different creatures of the night that uh, he has encountered over uh, many hundred years of unlife, and there just happen to be spl- stat blocks. Mm-hmm. Then it makes perfect sense for there to be ambiguity because Radu is. Uh, a, a limited, uh, if not unreliable narrator. And probably has biases,
1: right? Yeah. So when Radu describes Elizabeth Bathory as, uh, the incarnation of all that is, uh, perverse and, uh, awful in the world, you have to remember that Radu, if you read carefully, he got shot down by her very early in his vampire life. And she was like, I don't need another, you know, uh, boyfriend. Forget it, Radu. Go, go away. You bother me. And so he's got, he's got a grudge against her and a good writer can make it apparent that Elizabeth Bathory is maybe being slandered by Radu, although she's still a horrible vampire. Empire queen uh, in an objective
0: sense. Right. And that's a super cool uh, thing and not something you see a lot, I think, because it is super cool. Um, <laughs> but more often, what you see is something on the level of uh, no one knows what quadrant of space the Grundunes come from, and no one knows what is in their consciousness. What is only known is that they are irretrievably vicious and terrible. And uh, in that case, it is realistic in a thing that's written in a fictional voice to say, well, uh, yeah, we don't, we don't know where the Grand dunes come from. Uh, yeah, we would like to find out. Uh, but uh, you often see things that are written in the putatively omniscient voice that nonetheless say, "No one knows from what quadrant of space the Grand dunes come from." And here's where I'm going to get to the crux of uh, the, uh, what I want to explore in this, which is that sort of ambiguity is a cheat uh, because <laughs> it is mostly the uh, setting designer avoiding making a decision. Uh, it's just, eh, well, I don't want to decide. Uh, I think it's cooler if no one knows what quantitative space comes from. That's a, a little less of a cop-out, but I would argue it, it is still a cop-out. And so uh, if you are writing in, in uh, an omniscient voice, I would say it's much more interesting to suggest a mystery when it leads to a storyline. And so one thing there is if there's something that's currently not known... You want to make sure that it's not unknowable, right? Right. No one will ever know Mm -hmm. what quadrant the Grundunes come from. Right. When the Grundunes are
1: telepathically examined, they explode for nine die six damage. So good luck figuring out their motivation. Right.
0: Uh, (laughs) now, that's still a cool detail. Well, I can't help it, Robin. Right. Because what you've already... Because as a skilled setting designer, you have implied that there's an investigation into where the Grundunes come from. And therefore, uh, people have tried to find out where the Grundunes come from. Here's a failed thing that's been tried, telepathic scanning, uh seed 96 damage, but... That, instead, is the cool version of that, which is it suggests a plot line. Uh, So, for example, in Ashen Stars, there's a big unanswered question hanging over that setting, which is what exactly uh, happened to end the interstellar war with the weird psychic aliens that no one remembers. Uh, But the implication there is that is something that you uh, can conceivably put in front of your players as the thing that they solve in the case of the... Uh, a long running campaign and so uh, the book doesn't answer the question for you but it sets that ambiguity out as a thing to be interacted with and, that, and leaves open to the GM to fill in the answer of what that is and so that's I think an example of a, a more compelling ambiguity one that a mystery that can lead to an investigation and therefore uh, a solution of some kind
1: yeah the um uh in the old in nomine world we used to call that canonical doubt and uncertainty um, in which uh, the game said very clearly, we're not going to say if this given angel is the daughter of this other given angel or whatever. I don't remember uh, the specifics, but um, but we're going to leave it open to you, the GM, to decide. And that's fairly bald faced to say that. Um, you have seen enough of my manuscripts to know that my solution to the Grundune problem is to have a box out on the in the side or a little area in the Grundune section that says, "Here are nine possible places the Grundune could have come from, and what they might." be up to an explanations for the grand dune and that's when i you know sort of get my olaf stapled and yaya's out and just go crazy with all kinds of cosmic interpolations into the setting but the implication is the gm can pick from one of those or the gm can Use those as, uh, sort of creative seeds that spark their own brilliant idea, uh, that they're like, oh, I like all Ken's ideas because gosh, he's so great. But also here's one that would really, really sing for my campaign and my players. And also it's kind of better than any of Ken's ideas, you know, NBD, but
0: KBD. Right. And that is, that is exactly the point that I was moving toward as well, which is I think the superior use of ambiguity is to give the GM choices and, uh, by either directly or, uh, by inference, allow, uh, you know, suggest what the consequences of those choices are. So, uh, in the case of the Grundunes, it could be, uh, no one is sure whether the Grundunes emerge from a, a black hole, uh, in which case that would explain uh, the mystery of their uh, power armor and perhaps a place to go to, to find them, or uh, are a, a psychic emanation of a, a now-dead uh, species of godlike aliens, uh, in which case... Uh, the, uh, you might want to then investigate the, the planet of crystals. And so, uh, whatever you're putting, whether it's nine bullet points or two bullet points, whatever the choices you're putting in front of the GM, now all of a sudden you've taken a, oh, hand wavy, not sure where they're from, to here's a couple of places they could be from. And, and here is the consequence of making that decision in play. Or, you know, this castle, uh, some people say, that it is inhabited by sentient rodents, other people say it's mummies. And then it's like, of course, uh, you know your players and you know uh, whether they want to encounter sentient rodents or mummies, and therefore you can decide according to what they want to do. Or it could be, if you're using this part of the metaplot, obviously it makes sense to use uh, mummies, because that will uh, get them to the the reverse onk that is the MacGuffin of your campaign. Uh, But instead, if you're... uh, uh using the uh, this other uh, plot, the more political plot line, well, one of the uh, uh, rodents used to be uh, the prince before it was cursed by a witch or what have you. So all of a sudden you uh, guess what? and it's how to write good, and we're we've backdoored our way into a classic dictum of writing, which is that the uh, specific is more compelling uh, than the general, and that you move from the general to the specific. so that in this case, the general is. Uh, no one knows who's in the castle and then as specific as it could be rodents, could be mummies. And then even more specifically, here's how you can put that, uh, into play and, uh, and avoid, uh, the, well, I could have thought up an origin story in this, uh, uh, paragraph, but here I've just spent uh, 50 words establishing nothing and I get paid just as much for 50 words exactly. that establish nothing.
1: And that's, and that I think is something that in RPG setting writing, especially, you you have to keep in mind this is another general how to write good thought is that every sentence ideally should be a story hook it should be playable it should pr- provide actionable game content no one should be opening up a game book and have to skip around to find the part they play with right that's that's crazy people talk um you can do that with an encyclopedia and have more game hooks for god's sake so i would say that when you're writing your sentence, it can be ambiguous in meaning. It can be from an unreliable narrator. It can go two different ways. It can have any number of fun, shape-shifty, qualities to it, but it has to be playable on the page, right? You have to be able to look at that and say, this is what that sentence means for my game. Now, you can't have that beautiful dream come true in everything, but it's the goal you should always be shooting for. And the sentence that you have to put in to get to the next really f- fun pregnant sentence That sentence has got to be short and do its job and get out of the way. It just waffling along about the names of the 900 elven kings of the castle before the adventurers get there. Unless every one of those 900 is mummified in the basement and is going to come out and bite you in his own specific bite pattern. Don't worry about it. Just say it was ruled by 900 elven kings. And the 550th vanished and no one ever saw him again. And now that becomes a story hook instead of boring waffle that is delaying you getting to the castle.
0: Now, as, as a writer, uh, when you find, you may well find a bunch of wool gathering, uh, hemming and hawing or uh you know uh, whether it's ambiguity or setting detail that the players can interact with or or what have you uh, it's sort of natural while you're initially writing and you have a free flow of ideas and especially if you're one of those creators who sort of locks into uh, an imagined reality and just t- types down what you uh, think of but in the revision phase <laughs> that's when you go through and you look for oh look here's a thematic preamble where i was sort of spinning my wheels trying to get into this topic and it's only on sentence four that I actually introduce the grundunes. Uh, I can, uh, remove those three sentences that, uh, are, I needed those sentences to get to the sentence four, but you, the right. reader, don't need the sentences to get that,
1: to the, You said the quiet part loud. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or you or you can possibly if those uh if there's like one really killer phrase in those three sentences, you take those three sentences, you boil it down to that killer phrase, and that provides at least the reason to keep reading about the Grand Dunes, if nothing else. Right.
0: Uh, and the reason we bring it up in this context is both a we're both suggesting that RPG writing can be a little padded sometimes, but also <laughs> that uh ambiguity is one of the ways that you uh, pad things out while you're trying to you know, make your way into the meat of your idea, right? That you've got a cool, you know, there is something about the Grundoons that really uh, appeal to you, and you're going to get there, uh, but, um, you're but you're sort, sort of, of thinking, thinking well, out loud. Yeah. Um, maybe I should start with where they come from. Well, I'm not sure where they come from. No one knows where the Grundoons come from, type, type, type. And then you may look at an ambiguity, and if it's if the test is, only have ambiguities that you can then suggest several options for and explain why those options are both fun. Often the, the exercise in revision of saying, Oh, well, how do I come up with two fun explanations where the, where the Grundunes come from? And oh, well, actually no one cares where <laughs> they came from. Uh, so you can just say, oh, yeah, they come from planet 12. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> that's uh, where they come from. And you can drop that whole angle altogether because that uh, you know, initial fight with the ambiguity of the idea led you to what was really interesting about the Grand Dunes, which is their weapons manufacturing or the way they approach trade or, uh, you know, wh- what their weird aura reading ability does, and that you don't really need that ambiguity at all, and that's just getting in the way. It's suggesting sort of a false red herring, and the interesting thing about them is not where they come from, but uh, what they're doing now, Uh which brings us uh, to another point that you kind of... Uh, alluded to, but it's worth underlining is that often these sort of wool gathering ambiguities are about, uh, distant historical questions that are not interesting anyway. And, uh, so the, the answer may be either to make it more specific and turn them into fun choices or to just cut that bit as you're sort of uh, on ramp into a section.
1: Yeah. If you're playing a game where you're the, um, the Indians on the shore and Columbus is coming and trouble is about to happen you don 't have to spend anything in this role playing game explaining about Aragonese politics and why Isabella sponsored Columbus and any of that good Columbus meat that you would absolutely need in the game that took place in Spain, the game where you 're the poor Indians on you know Hispaniola. It's all got to be who are these hell people, and why do they spread death everywhere, and why are they made of metal, and what the hell man, and that's the Columbus part. No one cares about Spain on Hispaniola, sadly um maybe they maybe they have to in a little bit, but right now Spain is irrelevant. Cut Spain, just talk about these um uh these terrifying hell people and what they mean
0: right all and to to zoom back out to to the big lesson is always be asking yourself, how does this chunk of text impact play how is this useful how, how does the gm use it how do the players uh interact i would say how
1: does it improve play don't even stick with a negative or a, a neutral uh, verb like impact how does it if it doesn't improve play take it out
0: right but so much stuff doesn't even come up yeah um, and i think but by, by, <laughs> but by asking you the question is you know how does this come how does this happen in play uh, b- by, I, I think you're basically answering the, the same question. Right. Uh, well, I think we're, uh, into semantic, uh, fine-tunery here.
1: And we've given uh, like three
0: general principles. Exactly. Most podcasts would stop at one. They would, often this podcast. So no, it's time for <laughs> us to, to, to stop this segment and uh, see what lies on the other side of this, uh, exciting commercial message. What happens when you add
1: a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds all fa- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in
0: PDF a drive-through RPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X.
1: Logically related, but related by their love of role playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from
0: Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name, and don't forget that's F E N I X. And remember that's in English, not in Swedish. In English
1: not Swedish. Keep this podcast from sinking into the eternal pit of ambiguity by joining such Patreon backers as... Simon Proctor! Andrew Lallaberti!
0: Andrew Miller! Steve Kuntz! And Alexander Zimmerman! It's time now to carefully pry up the wax seal on the purloined missive, and to uh, take a dram of poison and stick it in the band of our capotane. Because, of course, this is not just the Tradecraft Hut, but this is a particularly 17th century edition of the Tradecraft Hut. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we promised that we would take uh, one of the books from Ken's most recent bookshelf uh, segment, The Secret World, A History of Intelligence by Christopher Andrew, which, if you will recall, is actually a survey of uh the whole field of historical intelligence, not just a preamble leading up to World War One and Two. And so uh we figured we could just pick a random page number and uh assign Ken the task of doing a segment on it. And so the page number is two two seven. And so uh Ken, uh where does that land us? I've already given away that it's the seventeenth century. Yeah you did. Uh where more specifically? It specifically lands us in sixteen
1: fifty seven when, uh, Oliver Cromwell has been ruling over England as its Lord Protector, and uh, with the help of his spy master, uh, John Thurlow, uh, and has appointed, according to Christopher Andrew, George Downing as the ambassador and head of intelligence operations in The Hague. And he's referred to as the unscrupulous George Downing, uh, which is a right. bit of a- And,
0: and to super 101 this, yeah. uh, Cromwell, of course, is Lord Protector of England from 1653 to 1658. Uh, he is the interregnum in English history when it is not uh, ruled uh, either uh, literally or figuratively by a monarch. But indeed, the English Civil War has taken place. Uh, Charles I has gotten a chop. And uh, I think all of the rest of uh, Europe, run, of course, by uh, authoritarian monarchs, is looking askance at all of this. With
1: the exception of... The Netherlands, which is actually kind of happy to have a fanatical Protestant Republican on the uh, on in the government of England, because they are also Protestant Republicans uh, of one or another sort, uh, and it is so uh, warm and happy between Netherlands and England that uh, the Statholders of the Netherlands suggested that they join and become one big Protestant Republic of Netherlands England. And one of the things that, uh, John Thurlow sent George Downing to do was to see if that was a good idea or not. And it turns out that George Downing said, no, it is a bad idea that the Dutch are, are, uh, uh, bad people and they don't want, uh, the best for Britain at all. They're just being, uh, selfish and mean and we should not ally with them. Now, According to Downing, he said uh, that his spies were so good that he could take the keys out of the stat holder of the Dutch, John DeVitt, while he was sleeping, take them out of his pocket, uh, open his uh, his desk, take his papers, uh, read them over for an hour, carry back, laid in his place, and the keys put back in his pocket. That's Downing boasting to Samuel Pepys, which is, uh, you will note, that he is boasting after, <laughs> considerably after the event, and indeed after the fall of the Cromwell uh, of the Cromwells. Yeah.
0: In general, it's bad opsec to both during your uh, your operation. Yes, it is, and even
1: George Downing, the unscrupulous George Downing, doesn't do it. But the reason he's called the unscrupulous George Downing is. Uh, when the Cromwellian, uh, when Oliver dies in 1658 and then his feckless son Richard gets, uh, bounced off the, uh, out of power by uh, the returning Charles II, uh, guess who stays on as ambassador to the Netherlands? Why? It's our old buddy George Downing. And then he becomes Sir George Downing and someone names Downing Street after him. And so <laughs> my favorite bit of all of this, is that, of course, he's, you know, oh, I was always on your side, King Charles. <laughs> you, you see, look at me screwing up that alliance between Britain and the Netherlands. What a great guy I am. Um, uh, the other best part of this is that he had been sent to Harvard University in Massachusetts uh, in uh, the 1640s because after the Puritans took over England, it was the only Puritan school of higher education in the world. And you couldn't send them to that hotbed of royalism at Oxford or Cambridge, uh, you have to send them to Good Harvard to get properly brought up to be really great Puritan, you know, Zompolites and Commissars. And uh he comes back and as we have seen, uh changes sides, shall we say, uh expeditiously. And then he he, of course, like everyone who worked for John Thurlow, he's accused of uh treason. And his defense is He blames his father for sending him uh, to Harvard, for banishing him to New England, and he says... He quote, had sucked in principles that since his reason had made him see were erroneous. So, so he fell in with bad companions and it was all the fault of Harvard for making him all American and Republican. And he's very, very sorry. And could he please have a knighthood?
0: Uh, that seems uh, like it absolutely checks out to me. I think that's uh, uh, excessive Americanism is, is a, uh, is a defense uh, that uh, anyone can cite. It's a known condition. Yeah. There's ointment for it now. I think exactly. Yes. You can't get rid of the uh the blue or the white but you can get the redness to go ha
1: <laughs> Well played, sir.
0: <laughs> and so as you suggest uh, both uh the Thurlow as well is deemed uh too useful to execute uh after the the uh royals take back over again and uh he's uh he's out of public life but he's re- uh, required to remain uh, active as a consultant and uh, as we all know that's how you get paid more. Exactly. It's a sweet gig. Yes. So, uh this sort of uh, points to the, a, a more general uh, fact, which is that Cromwell actually had a, a quite, and needed a quite extensive espionage operation. And, uh, so we have, uh, uh Thurlow, who's, uh, who's the M of his day, uh, and, uh, uh, George Downing. What is, uh, and presumably in, when he's in the Netherlands, he is, uh, uh, stealing people's keys and stuff in order to determine, uh, whether in fact, uh, they are good, uh, uh, allies or as it turns out he decides uh, not so much it's like these these dutch turn out to be self-interested who to thunk it mm-hmm. and there's also a a conspiracy of the sealed knot that is a big espionage story uh during uh this period Do you uh d- does that ring a bell with you
1: yeah the, the sealed knot is uh king charles the second. Uh, who is not yet King Charles II, he's just some guy named Charles II, uh, sets up a bunch of, uh, noblemen mostly and, uh, army officials because as, uh, William Saunders Webb points out, this is all just a series of coups d'état by the army and uh, your foolish beliefs about, uh, political ideology can go by the wayside he sets up a, a group of men uh the first baron size, uh sir william compton who's a, a, in the earl of northampton's family the henry hastings a couple of colonels and sir richard willies and sir richard willies turns out to be in the pay of John Thurlow. Yay. Um, uh, so he has all manner of uh, ability to undo the sealed knot. But as you can tell, we've got a double agent in the sealed knot. We've got a double agent, probably, possibly. This is how good George Downing is in Thurlow's operation on the Netherlands. So everyone is basically going back and forth saying, what do you think is going to happen? And when do we jump? And that is not a good recipe for setting up a good, um, uh, a revolt against the cromwells and also it's very hard to do a good revolt against the cromwells cuz there's one thing oliver cromwell knows it's uh how to stay alert and uh stomp on revolters given the obvious
0: way that he got in power and of course as if they know that this needs to be a series that runs out to uh, uh several seasons the sealed knot makes eight different attempts to bring about the restoration and i guess number 8 is the one that takes <laughs> yeah
1: i mean if if you believe that the sealed knot is who bring it about i mean by by the 16 uh, 59 when richard cromwell has fallen and the rump parliament is trying to run things by committee and doing a terrible job um Basically, the people in the rump parliament who are like, well, screw this for a game of soldiers, know to get in touch with the sealed dot because of course, Sir Richard Willys' name is in everybody's Rolodex by now. And so they, um, uh, they talk to him and he basically sets up a deal in which a, uh, the, a, uh, powerful, uh, Republican general, uh, George Monk, uh, switches sides and Monk, of course, turns out to be buddies with, guess who? John Thurlow. And that's why John Thurlow does not, in fact, go to the uh, chopping block, despite having hampered the sealed knot. There's a real sort of, what do I want to say, um uh, kabuki uh, to the spying in, in this era. I'm sure that Charles II was serious as a heart attack about taking over again. And obviously, Oliver Cromwell was the very definition of serious as a heart attack. Uh, But everyone, like, two stages down is very yes minister about this. They're just... Look, we just want to keep drinking coffee and not making waves. What do we do to make that happen? What do we, How can I help you to help me?
0: Yeah. How can I be number two or number three in whatever regime it is? Right. Uh, you know, whatever regime it is, is an abstract question. But how do I make sure that I'm still have my head attached to my neck uh, is, is always a good one. So uh, uh, and of course, in the question of, uh, you know, the sweep of historical events, uh, the, you know, what happens may not be down to any one particular person, but if we're uh, weaving a narrative, so let's say we're doing, uh, a, uh, you know, a, a lavish, uh, historical show for cable with, uh, semi-nudity and period swearing, uh, who is our protagonist, uh, to take us through several, uh, seasons of uh, lush production values? Who's, who would we seize on as our our main character
1: I think it, it kind of depends on on what show I mean I think actually as you know odious as he is Sir Richard Willis would make a fun central character in the sort of um uh uh better call Saul way that he's sort of this um, weasley, uh, manipulator, and he's going to be like related to everybody and friends to everybody and working for everybody. So following him would, would make a fun story at the end. He's, he's banished. So that can be a sort of a, a fun, you know,
0: he ends up, wind, he winds up working in a Cinnabon.
1: He does exactly. Uh, or in his case, uh, living in Fen Ditton, which is the Cinnabon of the 17th <laughs> century, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> and he, and he lives like 30 years in basic exile from power. Uh, and, and so that can be sort of our, our, um, uh, breaking baddie type, uh, fall down at the end that he does all this stuff to stay attached. And by the end, he's burned every bridge imaginable and no one trusts him to, as far as they can throw him.
0: Yes. The actors in old age makeup and an uh, um, amuensis uh, shows up in a carriage and goes into the manor and it's, well, let me tell you about, and then it goes back to the what um, becomes the main present day of the show so and uh for uh, a player character group of of adventurers obviously
1: you are picking sides or maybe you 're serving both sides if it 's a I think this would make a fun drama system setting actually is that everyone 's got both sides going on, but if it 's a more conventional procedurally role playing game, I think the player you you have the players all vote and say, Would you rather be working for John Thurlow or working for the sealed Knot? do you like?" Cromwell or do you like Charles II? And then the players who voted the other way, you can go to them and say, you can still work for the other side. <laughs> 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 yes,
0: that would be, uh, that would be perfect. And,
1: and then ideally you have, um, witches or say, or the Satanists in, in France, cause this is roughly contemporaneous with the, uh, with the poisoning, uh, the affair of the poisons. Um, or you got musketeers or something going on that can get your spy, uh, characters to have a, a sort of a bigger problem than just, uh, the other side, which is, I mean, real wilderness of mirrors. It's not just, uh, the, the John Le Carré empty, um, uh, cynicism. They're literally all related to each other they're all cousins
0: and if the player uh doesn't know their history so well and they go well what are the what are the benefits of of picking you know you pitch this to the group and uh it's a uh seven person group and three people want to play uh Thurlow's people and the other three want to play the sealed knot and it's up to the person who is uh you know they just want to hit things and so their question to you as the gm is uh what are the up, up and downsides of uh, choosing one side of the other what that tell me why I would find one fun and then why I would find the other one fun.
1: I think if they're a hitting person, they probably want to choose Cromwell because that was what he was all about. The whole new model army and the rest of it. Um, just if, and if they're, you know, more about um, frippery and repartee, then they would be drawn to the cavalier side. I think, you know, you can probably tell from their personality, which it is that they would rather do. If it's just a straight up, they don't care. They just want the one that gives them the most plus ones. Then in that case, Charles has got a smaller budget. I mean, it's just you get better better stuff if you work for uh Oliver Cromwell right now because he controls the uh the government and uh that's, you know, you you follow the money.
0: Right. And if you make the uh the underdog overdog choice, uh the current underdog is Charles. Mm-hmm. Uh well, I think on that note, uh we can uh, creep out of this uh 17th century trade craft hut and uh and see what is uh, uh beckoning as a a hut in the distance.
1: Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory.
0: Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time.
1: The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the Game Moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos.
0: Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of Eons Pre-Human.
1: Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and sourcebooks.
0: A Universe of Cosmic Terror lurks Just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it?
1: The cough of the alien big cat, the looming head of the gray alien, and the mysterious fog around all the historical details welcome us once more into that best and weirdest of huts, the Elliptony Hut. And today, the gray alien is from the red planet, the angry red planet Mars, and he's not a gray alien, he's an ectoplasmic form. And also, look at that, there's legitimate science being done right over there, that must make us... Uh, proximate to the great, the legendary, the magical, the compulsive joiner of the Parisian occult Beaumont, Camille Flammarion. And Robin, you, of course, uh introduced Camille Flammarion to the players and GMs of the Yellow King role-playing game. So why don't you introduce him to our listeners as well?
0: Right. And so we've been doing a series of mostly consulting occultists, uh, but uh, on occasion, an occasional an elliptony hut from these figures. And, and Flammarion, can equally be a consulting occultist because he's a theosophist and he's hanging out uh, with the uh, Parisian heir to Madame Blavatsky. And uh, he is uh, equally styled himself, at least, as a man of science. And I think we can argue uh, thinks like a man of science, no matter how deep into the woo-woo he sometimes goes. So he's uh, an astronomer. He's a uh, pioneering parapsychologist. He writes a a book about parapsychology a little after the Yellow King period in 1907. There he uh, goes into all of his uh, various investigations, mostly of uh, spiritists and mediums, and he considers himself a a spiritist, but he's a, uh, a, uh, whatever camp he's in, he's also a heretical version of that. Right. And he writes uh, popular science. He's an early science fiction writer even. Uh, so, uh, there's all sorts of, uh, angles that you can go at, uh, him from. And basically, I guess the, your, uh, the big take on Flammarion is that he's someone who takes, Either spiritist questions and then puts a scientific gloss on them, or he takes scientific questions and puts a spiritist gloss on them. It's it sort of depends, and and uh, which is which. And so he uh, not only believes in uh, tr- the transmigration of souls, but he believes in evolution. He's a Darwinist and a theosophist at the same time.
1: Well, the theosophy is sort of like exciting cartoon Darwinism, so. It fits.
0: Yeah. But he, he's got a special uh, take on, on how the, his own cosmology says that, uh, it's not just organisms that evolve, but it's souls that evolve over time. And so once a soul has gone through one incarnation, it finds new, improving incarnations throughout the universe. So it's not the, uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, Eastern idea of, you know, if you have bad karma, you regress to uh, you're a, a bandit a chieftain in this world and and next time around you come back as a worm because you were uh you accrued bad karma but here it's a, a more positive scientific vision where of course in keeping with the principles of science you evolve your soul into different life forms and that may mean going to another planet where there's a more advanced uh, sapient life form and then you live your life there and your soul migrates over to another planet so uh that's uh uh something that he deals with both in his uh, spiritist works and also in his science fiction. So he's got a uh, a science fiction work called Lumen uh in which an alien soul migrates through various bodies and the story is all is basically a hanger that uh allows the author to describe various weird alien civilizations. So a uh, great race of Yith anyone? I don't think we know that I think if Lovecraft had actually read Flammarion, he would have referenced him, presumably, in, uh, supernatural, uh, horror and literature, so.
1: Maybe not there, but he probably would have dropped his name somewhere in fiction. a letter, a fiction. Or that's what he does with his uh, nonfiction people like Murray and Blavatsky. Um th- I think it's possible that he would have known about the, uh, the, the sort of, um because there was something of a, of a, of a big whoop that Flammarion, of course, uh, got himself involved in, where a psychiatrist uh, studied a woman who believed that she was getting visions from Mars. And um, uh, he uh, said, this is nonsense. Uh, there's no such thing as a, as a Martian language. It's just French, but he wrote down all of her Martian transmissions. And it was sort of a big deal. Helen Smith, is her sort of, uh, pseudonym that he gave her. Her real name was, uh, Elise Muller and from India to the planet Mars was the name of the book. And it, it sort of had a, a nine days wonder in spiritism. And it's not impossible that, uh, Lovecraft might have run into it, but he, uh, Flammarion is dragged into this by having written, I think the introduction to the book because he was always happy to write a forward to your book. It, that was one of his uh, asimov habits. I mean, you yes. talked about DeRoshaus being Asimov. This guy is, Asimov to beat the Asimov. There's a million books that he writes or, or he writes forwards to or he writes uh, things that he runs a popular astronomy society, which is a scientific astronomy, but also does sort of popular astronomy. So the um, uh, L'Astronomie and the Bulletin of uh, the Society of, of, of the Astron- Astronomy of France. Uh, are, are both things that he's sort of running. So he's got a zillion articles as well. And he's also, as you say, writing science fiction and, uh, doing his own observations. He gets fired from the Paris observatory right after he starts talking about alien life, possibly yeah. as a, as a connection and then, yeah. uh, runs his own observatory, his own private observatory at Juvisy-sur-Orge. Uh, which is, uh, I have no idea where Juvici's or George is. A little bit north of Paris, it looks like.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, as you suggest, he, he will not only write a forward for you if, if you want, which is more than I will do for you, uh, but, True. uh, he, uh, will show up at your, uh, occultist society party. And so that's uh, what makes him a, uh, great and accessible, uh, game master character for, uh, for the yellow king is that, uh, if you, uh, hang around with these guys, you're going to bump into him. He's a, a visually striking, a uh, character. He's got a big uh, mane of white hair and a big old bushy mustache and a big uh, white beard. So he he definitely uh, looks the part, uh, absolutely. And uh, he's always inquiring into things, so he can uh, uh, send you on uh, missions and stuff. And he's uh, pals with a bunch of other uh, characters. And so if you uh, interact with one of them, eventually you'll bump into uh, him. And so you know he's. Uh, you know, uh, contributing to a uh, a birthday pamphlet celebration for uh, Papas, who we're going to talk about in a while, or as you suggest, he's uh, a uh, uh, he works with um, Albert de Roja, and we talked previously in the de Roja segment about uh, Eusebio Palladino. Who he was in on that investigation. Um, one thing that I think is really interesting about him is that he actually does legitimately cling to the scientific. Uh, method, even when it makes him look bad. Right. That, uh, we've, uh, mentioned before that, uh, scientists are generally, uh, easily fooled by magicians. Uh, they're a little too, uh, trusting. And, uh, there's a lot of, uh, so-called scientific parapsychologists who stuck to, uh, believing what they wanted to believe instead of what the evidence, uh, told them. And Flammarion, to his credit, uh, admitted to being fooled. So, uh, in his book, Uh, Mysterious Forces from 1907, which is a uh, an early, you know, hands-on book about parapsychology from the point of view of someone who was investigating a lot of different mediums, he concedes the following. I've quite often been absolutely deceived. When I took the precautions that were necessary to put the medium beyond the possibility of trickery, I obtained no result. If I pretended not to see anything, I would perceive out of the corner of my eye attempts at deceit. And in general, the phenomena which took place happened only in the moments of distraction in which my attention was for an instant relaxed. So, he admits to to having been fooled by various mediums and, and catching on to them. Now, of course, he then goes on to say, just because fraudulent paranormal things exist doesn't mean that the real ones don't too. It just means you have to be careful not to be uh, credulous yeah he's
1: not a um, he doesn't believe in although he's good buddies with uh, the spiritual the sort of the father of French spiritualism Alan Kardec he doesn't believe that uh, mediums summon ghosts he thinks that it's just the math is against it, that there'd be billions and billions of ghosts around if they were all ghosts. And that doesn't make any sense. They, they have no place for them to stand. Um And uh that once you sort of scientifically examine all the spirit communications, they're uh, easily explained by things that people could have known or by telepathy from the group around the table. Uh And so you take that away and there's barely any real visions of ghosts at all later on in his life, he sort of comes back around the other side to haunted houses, but he thinks that haunted houses might also be telepathic transmitters. He's not sure if they set up to transmit telepathy from Mars instead of from the people. He's he's got a a sort of a a fairly recondite and confused theory about haunted houses much later in his life.
0: And and like a scientist as well, we don't have all the evidence, so I can't rule out ghosts. Maybe there's a few weird edge case ghosts uh, here and then. But uh, mostly, of course, it's about this eminently provable theory I have about transmigration of souls through uh, inhabited and worlds telepathic contact across the universe. Um, yeah, so he believes that um, the Martians have been in uh, mental communication with Earth already, and so all you have to do is track down the evidence of that, and that'll uh, reveal uh, secrets of Martian civilization. Later on, after the uh, period covered in The Yellow King, uh, when Halley's Comet is coming around, he concludes that it's uh, that the tail of the comet uh, contains uh, toxic gas, which will wipe out all life on Earth. And, uh, <laughs> and unlike Mark history, Twain, he
1: lives long enough to prove that that's wrong.
0: Yes, um, but he's an interesting figure in that he's, uh, you know, he still has enough of a foot in the scientific world that there's uh, there's a crater on uh, the moon named after him. There's a crater on Mars named after him. He and was one the first named after two-
1: his observatory, I believe.
0: Yeah, uh, there was a uh, he proposed uh names for some of the moons of uh some of the outer planets, a couple of them that were later uh, became the official names. So uh he's uh he's got a bit of naming rights out there as as well. But uh, uh and, and so basically he's a great character to interact with because he had his fingers in so many pies that uh he could easily assign you you know the characters, you know, eight or nine different uh, missions that are quite distinct from each other uh because he's doing so many things. So he's looking in a haunted houses you go off and look into a haunted house he gets a vision of a black star comet coming your way uh well you have to go out to uh the one observatory where the telescope is actually registering the appearance of the comet and oh we've got a medium story this week so there's there's just so much you can uh, do for him and he's just visually uh striking and, and fun have you actually read any of his fiction
1: i've I've never read his fiction I've read some of his uh nonfiction uh both the crazy stuff and the sort of uh, popular astronomy. His, he had a book on Mars that I read, uh, a while back when I was doing some Mars research. Um, it's fine. I mean, the, the translations are pretty pedestrian, I assume, because who puts effort into translating Camille Flammarion, really? I mean, I, I, I haven't read Lumen. I haven't read, uh, his other novels. I mean, who's got the time? I, I assume at some point Brian Stableford will do a good translation of them and then, uh, maybe I'll swing back around and, and go after him. Have you read any of the stuff? I've I not. Yeah, I mean the it, the thing is, if you are an influence on Olaf Stapledon, read Olaf Stapledon. He's a million times better. Uh, that would be uh, what I say. Oh, and and look at that, uh, Stapleford has uh, translated Lumen. So I guess anyone who's super curious, go find Stapleford's translation of Lumen, and you will read or Stapleford's translation of Lumen, and you will read read it as good as it can get.
0: So I think we've uh, we basically uh, covered uh, Camille Flammarion and uh, can uh, tick off uh yet another of the uh, many impressively bearded figures of uh, of the Belle Epoque. and we'll uh, uh we're going to be uh it'll be a while before we get back to them because uh Ken you and I are uh headed to uh Dragon Meat and so that means uh the next couple of episodes will either be uh the live episode and then our uh, travel advisory and uh, bookshelf or vice versa. We might flip them. So, but at any rate, uh, we'll have a couple of weeks break from, uh, the occultists and elliptinists of the bellapock, and we'll get back to it.
1: But there are a lot, lot more. Yes. Yes.
0: Uh, and so on that note, uh, Ken, uh, let's go and, uh, review our, uh, packing uh, checklist and make sure we don't forget any nerd trope cards or anything.
1: Let's get our oyster cards out.
0: Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors... Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority
1: question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and
0: Robin. Forstall this podcast's transmigration to the great beyond alongside such Patreon backers as... Anderson Todd. Jim Crocker. Joe Webb. Ludovic Shavan and phil groff gift holiday pals with ken and robin apparel at teeplebook.com slash user slash ken robin
1: check out our new design cthulhu is woke on twitter
0: he's at kenneth height and he's at robin d laws see you next time And once again we will talk about stuff